Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 399 of the FCPA Compliance Report. Today, I have with me fan favorite Matt Ellis. Matt is here to talk about the Miller & Chevalier Summer 2018 FCPA Report. As always, the law firm puts together a fabulous report of the quarter's activity, and then they integrate it in with prior reports so that you get a full half-year report. This year, it's chock full of information, statistics, and really lessons learned for the compliance practitioner going forward. Some of the highlights of this podcast include the uh, Dun & Bradstreet Declination, the Panasonic Avionics FCPA Enforcement Action, Society Generale, really as bad as it gets, yet the company still got a discount. In the Leg Mason case, we took a look at parent liability for the actions of an agent. And once again, with Credit Suisse, we learned that hiring of the son or daughter of a foreign government official in order to influence them is clearly an FCPA violation. It's a fascinating exploration of some of the FCPA enforcement actions, international issues, and trends that the firm of Miller & Chevalier has seen over the past quarter. I know you will enjoy it. I'll link to the report in the show notes. This is Tom Fox. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. And today you're in for a real treat because I have back with me Matt Ellis. Matt is a member at Miller & Chevalier, and we're here to talk about the Miller's Summer Review 2018 around the FCPA. Uh, Matt, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. I'm always glad to be here with you on these uh, these podcasts. So, Matt, uh, once again, um, this uh, quarterly publication by Miller is just an outstanding resource for the compliance professional. It's a great resource for the white-collar practitioner like yourself. It's a great resource for the uh, compliance professional, the chief compliance officer, uh, anybody who's uh, really interested in uh, international or domestic anti-corruption enforcement. Um, so with that, though, um, you always, or the firm rather, always starts out with uh, some of the general trends and numbers. And I was wondering if there's anything that really has really struck out or stuck out for you uh, in either this report or the first couple of quarters this year that you'd like to highlight before we dive into some of the specific enforcement action. Definitely. And, you know, first off, thanks for the compliment. You know, we put a lot of time, a lot of work into these reports. Fifteen of our attorneys are always involved in, you know, drafting up the summaries and gathering and tracking the data. And so it's good to get positive feedback from, you know, folks out there like like yourself. What we're seeing in this second quarter um, are a lot of trends that have um, that have continued. And these are important trends to highlight for practitioners out there you know, in the market from a 10,000 foot level looking down, you know, it's important to first note that, you know, whether or not you include the credit Swiss enforcement action, which was announced by the company in June, right, which falls within the period, but confirmed by the DOJ in July, which falls outside of the period, you know, we're talking about a continuation of a steady stream of enforcement actions in this period, either four or five. And, these actions, each one is an action that um, really serves to close out, to wrap up a long-running investigation. An investigation, you know, these investigations began under the Obama administration. As you know, these things take years and years um, to to investigate, to negotiate, to conclude. Um, And what we're seeing now with the DOJ and SEC is 
you know, explicit um, uh, messages, statements from them saying that their interest is to make these things quicker, to close them out. At the DOJ, they've hired additional trial attorneys um, for the stated purpose of, you know, helping to investigate these cases more quickly. And, uh, and they've even said, you know, they want to see resolutions in, in the span of months, not years. Um, on the SEC side, you know, we've seen policy statements saying it only makes sense to draw these investigations to a close quickly because, you know, you have the most impact. Um, the actions are the most effective uh, when they're closed, you know, at a time that's cl somewhat close to the alleged wrongful conduct. Um, and so, you know, I think supporting those perspectives, we're seeing, you know, more and more cases, more and more backlog investigations uh, being closed out. Uh, we're also seeing a continuation of a focus on, on declinations. You know, we, we track the data there. A number of companies announced that they um, have, have received uh, declinations. Um, this is, you know, consistent with uh, the DOJ's, you know, new FCP enforcement uh, program. Um, and so it's good to see that, you know, uh, the, they're, they're walking the talk uh, here and, uh, and closing out these cases, of course, and we'll discuss this in greater detail, but that's for companies that do disclose, that cooperate, uh, and that um, re remediate. You know, uh, an, in an interesting dynamic that we see that is tending to counter some of that, um, uh, you know, focus on closing out cases are a couple of dynamics at play that we think um, tend to uh, or have the effect of, of drawing cases out. And the first, and we'll talk about this, is um, the multi-jurisdictional aspect of these investigations these days, right? The DOJ and SEC oftentimes are, are finding themselves collaborating, cooperating with authorities in other parts of the world. And you know, now they're publicly stating and they're reforming the, the attorney's manual to state that, you know, they won't pile on, that they will um, pr proactively work to coordinate penalties, to coordinate investigations with their counterparts. And that takes time, right? I mean, these are, these are different legal regimes um, and, uh, you know, different approaches to investigations. And so we're seeing that dynamic draw these investigations out. And then the second um, dynamic we're seeing have effect on the timing of investigations are data privacy rules, in particular GDPR, which of course has received quite a lot of, um, you know, correctly, a lot of uh, focus. And, um, you know, now that companies really have to navigate more carefully uh, data privacy rules, national security rules, and various jurisdictions related to gathering, reviewing data um, has uh, means that oftentimes we're seeing kind of a slower movement to these investigations. So those are some of the rhythms we've seen at play, some of the dynamics we've seen at play from a high level. So Matt, uh, over the years, I've heard you characterize the decision to self-disclose as one that may be one of the most difficult decisions, not only a CCO and a general counsel, but even a board of directors uh, might make. Do you see anything in either this quarterly report or really anything in this continuity uh, that you've um, identified that would really uh, sway or, or help to make that decision any easier, or is it just always going to be a difficult decision? 
Yeah, I mean, it'll be a different, difficult decision always. Um, you know, leaders of companies are are rightly uh, uh, are rightly you know cautious about bringing to the attention of to the authorities the acts of potentially criminal misconduct, right? Um, but more and more, there are indicators at play which are really um, sending the signal that it might make sense. Uh, and one is, you know, I think we can point to the Dun & Bradstreet um, resolution. Um, of course, the DC, the SEC did apply a penalty, did apply disgorgement, um, but the DOJ um, did grant full declination. And, you know, that case is described in detail in our quarterly report. Um, but some of the uh, some of the specifics mentioned by um, the DOJ uh, to support its um, declination, I think, are helpful to those conversations, right? The conversations that attorneys have with audit committees, with boards of directors, or with senior management when they're weighing that um, decision. And maybe we can just dig into to those details with Dun and Bradstreet. Um, you know, in that case, uh, the, the the cooperation uh, with the DOJ was said to have been, uh, you know, significant involved you know, not only disclosing facts to the DOJ, but making employees available for interviews, translating documents, you know, the real full-on cooperation that sends the message that the company is here um, to, uh, you know, to be a partner with the government and to, to, uh, and, and to be as transparent as possible. And then on the remedial side, it really was impressive, the steps that DMB took. I mean, they ceased the business operations of the subsidiary in China that was problematic. You know, they shut down operations. There was a JV in China that also was engaged in problematic activity, and, and um, the company discontinued the unlawful practices of that JV. It terminated 11 DMB uh, employees. This is something in our work, you know, we often see DOJ expressing that, you know, an interest in terminating employees who had knowledge, who authorized, who were in leadership positions at the time. And that's a tough thing, right, for an organization to do, especially in a region like Latin America, where, as you know, Tom, I do quite a lot of work, um, where there are concepts of loyalty, there are concepts of, you know, allowing an employee to, to remediate um, uh, him or herself, right, um, and, uh, you know, embrace business ethics. But what we saw here is 11 employees uh, terminated. So, you know, those are some of the – each of these actions helps in that discussion. It helps us um, convey to leadership it's, the, it's their decision. The most we can do as advisors is discuss the pros and the cons. Um, but, you know, Dun & Bradstreet is a helpful case. We might also point to the Societe Generale case, which was also concluded in, 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 that, in this last period. Um, and in that in that case, even though the um, the uh, settlement amount was massive, you know, 585 million dollars, it was still discounted um, from what it could have been. I mean, this was a case of egregious activity where you had you know numerous employees of Societe Generale with knowledge. You had efforts to conceal uh, relationships with you know the problematic uh, intermediary. Um, and so even despite those bad facts, um, the, the institutions, the lawyers were able to proceed with an aggressive cooperation strategy, remediation strategy, and get some discount.
That's a really significant point from that case, Matt. And um, you you just gave a tease hint, but that case really had some incredibly egregious facts. But more than just the egregious facts, you had some some pretty um, uh, problematic conduct by the company after the uh, initial uh, bribery and corruption scheme was uncovered. And we saw really uh, not much an original or initial con- uh, cooperation with the department. Yet at some point when the company did uh, change tactics and decide to move towards a cooperative mo- cooperation mode and certainly a remediation mode, uh, I found the DOJ gave real credit and that real credit credit was 25% off a minimum sentencing range. So I thought that was a pretty strong statement from the department. It was interesting because the department, it did give credit while at the same time highlighting aggravating factors, right? I mean, it talked about the length of the misconduct. It talked about the the high value of the bribes that were paid talked about the involvement, the awareness, you know, or, or the willful ignorance of, you know, important employees within the institution. And at the same time, it gave credit for the investigation, for producing, you know, so much evidence, for providing regular updates. So, you know, sometimes it depends, you know, who you're dealing with at the agencies, but this goes to show that there are reasonable people on the other end, and these can be discussions. We've you know, one of the blockbuster enforcement actions that we um, uh, represented a company in, um, I mean, that was a case that did not involve a voluntary disclosure. But as soon as the authorities learned of the issue, we damn well treated it like one. And we were able to close out the case in record time and achieve significant discount. Uh, based on that aggressive cooperation and the aggressive remediation, something that was acknowledged in the settlement documents by the enforcement authority. So it's real. You know, there are reasonable people on the other end. So we had uh, really not too many uh, enforcement actions, Matt, but we had some significant ones. And you, you spoke about Societe Generale and the uh, the amount of the fine, certainly putting it in, in the top five. But uh, we had another one which uh, I thought just had incredibly egregious facts and a lot of lessons learned because of the variety of bribery schemes involved, which was Panasonic Avionics. Anything really stand out or you want to highlight? There was a lot that stood out for me in this case. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, you know, this we could spend a while on this podcast, but maybe to really pinpoint some takeaways I had, you know, first this is the DOJ and SEC case, and it was a case that involved, you know, one of these discretionary accounts of a, of a CEO or a president, which kind of brings up SQM, right? Cases where, and this is common in large corporations where the, you know, senior leader has access to funds to, you know, for executive travel or corporate entertainment or, you know, those reasonable type of, type of activities you would expect a CEO of a major global corporation uh, to have. The problem is when those accounts are not subject to the same types of, you know, re- review and approval um, mechanisms that other accounts are subject to. And, you know, here was a, a case where that got the company in trouble. It's also a case where, you know, you look at the use of third parties and it sends the message yet again that, Third-party due diligence is not just that. It's due diligence and monitoring. And if you're just doing upfront reviews, upfront diligence, 
it's not sufficient. There's an expectation of ongoing monitoring. And the reason that was so critical in Panasonic was that, I mean, it appears from the settlement documents that what was happening is that the consultants that were being used to help obtain these, you know, valuable contracts in high-risk jurisdictions around the world, uh, those consultants were not being paid directly. They were being paid through a third-party vendor who was already approved in the system and um, was providing, you know, unrelated services. Um, and so that's just to show that, you know, your your monitoring program should involve mechanisms like, you know, perhaps utilizing internal audit to go over your vendor list and see if people are, you know, any spikes in payments to certain vendors or, you know, are we auditing our vendors to make to make sure that, you know, what they're charging us for, there is support, they're deliverables, there's some type of documentation showing that is that documentation does it look fabricated or does it look real? I mean, these are the types of ongoing monitoring mechanisms that are really necessary in order to avoid uh, these types of situations. And another aspect, I mean, again, we can keep going, but you know, what we learned from the settlement documents is that um, they uh, apparently, when they did implement a remedial strategy, when they did start performing uh, meaningful diligence on third parties. They terminated some of those third parties, um, but wound up rehiring them as sub-agents to an agent that had already been cleared. And, you know, this is something that, as we do, Tom, uh, you know, you want to make sure that you're diligencing not only the, the principal, but ensuring that if there are subs working for a high-risk third party that you're having the opportunity to know that they're participating, that you can do your own due diligence on them. So that was another interesting aspect um, of that case that that jumped out to me. So we did have a couple of cases that I thought were interesting, perhaps for a little bit different reasons. Uh, they were both less of a fine and penalty um, as, uh, I don't know if you'd call it as part of Societe Generale, but uh, at least an adjunct was Leg Mason who was involved uh, with the same uh, bri uh, similar bribery schemes in uh, Libya uh, around the so uh, bribing uh, to get uh, business with the Sovereign Wealth Fund. And that case really drove home for me, Matt, the um, just the clear demarcation that under FCPA, at least, a parent is always, and I have to repeat, always going to be responsible for the actions of his agents because there was no evidence that Leg Mason was involved in the bribery or in corruption or perhaps even knew knew about it directly. There may have been evidence that they uh, looked the other way, but no evidence of affirmative intent and yet they were um, found uh, liable or admitted liability uh, or at least uh, went through an enforcement action where their agent who no longer exists, the company uh, was dissolved, uh, was clearly the culpable party. And it was amazing, right? And the agent itself, I mean, it wasn't, you know, the evidence of wrongdoing related to two mid-level employees of the agent, right? It, there was no evidence that it was some pervasive misconduct um, at that at that subsidiary level. Um, and those employees had left the company, right? And the subsidiary had been shut down. Um, so it was, uh, you know, and it, I, I, what I found interesting was um, some of the indicia that uh, DOJ cited for a finding of, uh, you know, to support that, that the parent company had control over the agent. 
um, some of the factors it laid out were, um, you know, the company's majority ownership in, in, in the agent, uh, the consolidation of the agent's financial statements up to the parent companies, um, the, the parent company's participation in the, in a net revenue sharing arrangement with the subsidiary. Um, and also, um, <laughs> this I thought was an interesting one. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on it, but the fact that, you know, the agent's employees were subject to the parent's code of conduct. Now, does that mean that when we're trying to push out our compliance pro- you know, programs to, to subsidiaries, uh, to companies that are controlled by our clients, you know, that we need to worry that that is in some way creating liability where none existed before? You know, I don't think that's a conclusion. I could certainly anticipate that question from a client. Um, I, I read this to be just an add-on, right? I mean, you're not, uh, I don't know, any thoughts on that, Tom? So, you know, Matt, my background is uh, a, a trial lawyer on uh, Texas State Court. And the issue of contractor status, independent contractor versus employee, principal versus agent, uh, subsidiary versus um, corporate parent, uh, is always an issue, and it always turns on uh, not indicia of control, but the right of control, and then actual control. And by them putting that in there, I thought that was a pretty strong signal that um, if you do subject your agents to uh, those types of controls, you're going to be liable. Now, of course, the flip side that someone would say, or the flippant response is, well, we just won't do any of that. Well, that's even exactly. worse. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, and that's I don't want to right. Yeah, I don't want to say damned if you do and damned if you don't. The, I think the proper response is let's do it the right way. Let's communicate our expectations to our agent, uh, and if those expectations are, are communicated, we we may see a case where there's a declination when uh, the agent went clearly out of bounds. Uh, here, that didn't happen. But um, that that issue, the indicia of control, the right of control, and then the actual control, uh, that's pretty clear evidence that uh, a parent is going to be held liable for the actions of its agent. Yep, I agree. So we had one last one, which uh, I always think these these cases are interesting. Uh, they're the hiring cases, the princes, princeling cases, um, and Credit Suisse got into trouble. We've now had... Uh, one, two, three, four of these hiring cases. And I guess, Matt, the thing I wanted to pose to you is the following. Uh, This was a case where a company hired sons and daughters of Chinese government officials and employees at state-owned enterprises. Uh, They were clearly hired outside the normal hiring practice. They were clearly hired directly to influence uh, contracts. And when uh, a large number of commentators read these cases, they say, oh, you can never hire a son or daughter. And I don't think that's true at all. I, I agree it's a high risk, but I don't think that that ends your inquiry if you want to do that. And I really wanted to ask you that question for some time. Do you really advocate not even hiring a son or daughter of a government official? Or do you say this is a high risk, but it's a risk? And if we identify it, then let's put in risk management protections around it. You know, this is such a great string of cases to discuss with boards of directors and trainings with senior management because, you know, I have had this very conversation and I, I think you're right on. I mean, of course, this doesn't, not of course, but in, in my own view, this doesn't mean that you can never hire 
a, uh, a relative, right, of a, a high-ranking official that works for a client, right? Um, I mean, if is the person qualified? Maybe he or she is. Are they going through the same processes that other individuals are going through? Um, well, yes, they should. Um, are they uh, showing up to work, right? I mean, do we have a you know, a, a documented record of, of their performance? Are they, is their internship ending, you know, this after the same duration of time that everyone else's internships are ending? You know, if, if you can, if you, in a documented way, demonstrate that, yes, they happen to be related, um, but they're following the normal process, you know, I, I think it, it you, I think it could be acceptable. Now it is, it, it is higher risk, but at the same time, you know, we need to realize the the reality of business in in you know in 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 places like China and relationships matter. You know, especially in in, in places like Latin America. And so, it's not surprising to think that an executive of of a company subject to the FCPA, you know, might meet a very impressive um, child of a counterparty, right? Um, at some point, um, and it might be in the organization's interest to give a work opportunity to that individual, despite the, um, the relationship. Transparency, obviously, would be another key component. Are we making sure that this, the uh, agency of the official is aware? Um, and uh, so I, I think there are ways to recognize that these relationships do develop in reality, and there are ways to um, structure them so that they are appropriate and you're, you're managing risk. So, Matt, um, fortunately, we're near the end of our time. So uh, perhaps uh, uh, one ending question. I guess um, looking at this uh, Miller uh, summer uh, review, the FCPA 2018 summer review, and, and considering back the, uh, the spring review and, and back over the winter one of the things, the themes I have seen uh, that you guys really um, bring forward is continuity, continuity from the Department of Justice that uh, perhaps in 2017 was a period of consolidation or at least clarification in November, late November, we had the FCPA corporate enforcement policy. Uh, in May, we had the piling on, anti-piling on policy. And I see the department really moving um, from a from back the from the FCPA pilot program to the new corporate enforcement policy, and trying to uh, encourage companies to come forward, and we even have uh, Rod Rosenstein and others from the department specifically saying, you know, we want them to come forward. Is uh, is that a theme that you've really seen over this time frame, or are you seeing things in a little bit different light? It is a theme. It is, and it's something I've thought about because I remember, you know, five seven years ago when we were having these conversations and. You know, the, the practitioners in the field were trying our best to glean trends, um, to glean stories from the pattern of enforcement that we were seeing, right? And I remember specifically DOJ and SEC saying, hey, you know, watch out. Don't try to draw grand conclusions from the stats. You know, don't try to draw conclusions from from the uh, our, our enforcement activity, a lot of this stuff is random. And uh, but now I do think you can draw conclusions, and I think um, the reason you can is because 
you know, this is happening within this context of broader policies, detailed policies that the agencies are issuing, um, and that one would think they have an interest in conveying to the markets, right, this idea that, hey, these aren't just words, they're policies we are really going to try to, to implement. So in that light, I do think we're in somewhat of a different different world right now. And I think it, we stand on stronger footing when we begin to draw these, these um, trend lines and these broader conclusions. Well, Matt, this has been a fascinating exploration of one of uh, the compliance realm's uh, great treasures, which is the uh, quarterly Miller Report. I really would like to thank you for taking the time to visit with me today. We will link to it in our show notes. Thank you, Tom. Thanks again for this opportunity, and I look forward to seeing you soon. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. As you know, if you listen to the intro of this episode, next week will be episode 400. I promise a very special episode for you. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.